0: I would say that I am, generally speaking, not a details-oriented type person. There are certain moments in my life where I definitely would be like, okay, those are small details, those things matter. But in general, I would say in general, just generalizations here, I I tend to be more big picture, not small, detail-oriented little things that, to me, sometimes I feel like they just don't matter. Let's be honest. Like, you just need to get something done. But that's really difficult sometimes when you work with somebody who gets really into details, and sometimes those details, again, they feel like they don't really matter to you, but to them, they're really important. And so sometimes when I'm working with Julian, who I love very much and think he's wonderful, he'll come to me, he'll be like, Hey, Rob, look at this. And he shows me some video he made. I say, Hey, that's really great. And then he goes, Now look at this. And I say, Hey, that's really great. Isn't that the same thing? He said, No, no. It's like the light was slightly different or there's a millisecond difference. And I'm like, I don't notice those things, Julian. Why why are you stressing over these things, Julian? But he, he's so gifted and he's so talented in these things that for him, those details are really important. So sometimes when we start talking about TV shows or music or anything like that, he's really into the little details that make a show great, whether it's the lighting or or the camera angles, things like that. And I'm usually just like, okay, Julian, have a good day. See you later. (laughs) Let's think big picture. It was a good show. Let's leave it at that. But sometimes details really matter. And that's the truth. And if we're not people who always pay attention to the details, sometimes we can miss something significant as we're just thinking big picture. It could be in our daily life where we experience this, where we maybe we're in a significant relationship, whether it's a marriage or even just a really good friendship, or even it's siblings and someone says something in passing and you're like, oh, that's not that important, but it turns out it really was, those details matter, right? So sometimes we need to pay attention to the details. This month and a bit, we've been in this series called Signs, and Signs is all about the details, because it's the Gospel of John and the seven signs that Jesus performs leading to Easter. And John is particularly interesting in the Bible because he really really cares about details. And his details are so easy to overlook, because you'll still get the big picture, but if you pay attention to those details, they can be significant and meaningful. And so, as we've been in this series, maybe you've been following along, maybe you've been uh, reading scripture yourself, maybe not, and maybe you've noticed some of those details. Because the details for John are where the story really is. Because when you get to the details and you understand what he's trying to point to, it makes that big picture even more significant. And this morning, as we're going to look at one of the miracles Jesus performed, for John, the details of this miracle set the stage for Jesus' greatest miracle, his resurrection. And so in John chapter 6, we encounter a story that for many of us, it would be somewhat familiar Maybe it's a story we've heard many times if we've gone to church. Maybe if you were in Sunday school at one point, there was a flannel graph, and there were baskets, and there was bread, and there was fish, and you heard this story. Maybe if you've never been to church, you've never heard this story, and that's good, because for you, this is fresh. And just like fish, when it's fresh, it's better. But in John's gospel, he tells this story, which is found in all the other gospels, but John highlights details differently. And John has collected these stories to paint this picture to lead us to the cross to understand the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection and the difference that Jesus can make in your life. And so in John chapter 6, we'll start off in verse 1. Sometime after this, so if you were here last week, it's sometime after last week's discussion. We talked about Jesus healing someone. And so this is sometime after this experience, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. In those first few lines, there are an incredible amount of details that you could easily look over because the rest of the story gets so exciting. But these details were important for John to include. And these details were important because it sets both the, the setting and the location and the date of what's going on. It sets things up so that everything kind of comes together for John. First off, he tells us where they are. And they say the Sea of Galilee. And he says, that is the Sea of Tiberias. This actually a little piece of information, this kind of helps you understand the date of when John wrote this gospel. Because for the earlier audience, they would have understood it as the Sea of Galilee. But for the later, maybe like the 80s or the 90s, they would have understood it as the Sea of Tiberias, because the name change. And so John sets this up, and he sets up this location for it. And they've gathered this crowd. They've crossed to the far shore, which likely likely was more of a Gentile area, meaning a non-Jewish area, to be listening to Jesus. So if we're familiar with the story of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, there's this division between Jews and Gentiles, the Jews, the people of Israel, the people of God, who God's called, who's led out of slavery through the leadership of Moses, and then they're God's people. And that through those people, there's to come a Messiah, someone who will bring hope and healing and life to the world, both Jew and Gentile. So in this moment, there's a good chance Jesus is not in the Jewish area per se. We don't know for sure because we don't, he doesn't say exactly where he is, but there's a good chance of it. And the other thing that he brings up, which is so important, is he says, the Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, maybe you've, Heard of Passover 4, again, we celebrate, if you're from a Jewish tradition, uh, you celebrate this as the reminder that Moses led the people out of slavery. You watch the Ten Commandments around Easter, that's what you do, and this is the importance of it, right? God saved his people. And John says, it's near. If you've been reading the book of John, you're in chapter 6. That means the first five chapters happened in the first year of Jesus' ministry because he was in the Passover when he cleansed the temple, when he brought out the money changers. And this is the second year of Jesus' ministry. Those first five chapters encompass a year of stories about Jesus. Time travels quickly in the Gospel of John. Not everything is recorded. But for John, he wants you to know it's been a year. These people who have decided to follow Jesus, they've been hearing the stories about him for a year. This isn't just like, oh, he just showed up and he did something. They've been hearing the tales being told about this man who comes and heals people for a year. The anticipation for him to be there again was huge. And so the crowd gathers. and as he goes up on the mountainside and sits down with his disciples. One of the things that John does whenever he mentions the Passover is he wants his audience and, and us as well to think about that first Passover. Think about what God did the first time. Think about how God rescued his people, how God chose someone in Moses and established his people. He wants us to think about that in the story of Jesus. And this one in particular has a lot of parallels. So the text continues. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite, a bite, not even be filled, a bite. So Jesus sees the crowd coming. He's with his closest followers. He sees this crowd coming. They're coming to hear him. They're coming to see him. They're coming to wonder what he does. The other Gospels paint it a little bit differently. But in John's Gospel, he says he sees them coming, and he goes to Philip. He says, all right, how are we going to feed him? What are we going to do? And the text says this is a test. You might be thinking, that's not fair. He didn't study. He didn't prepare. But yes, he did. He had a year with Jesus. Before this point, Philip knew what Jesus could do. And Jesus asked him, well, so where are we going to get this bread? And Philip's immediate answer is, we don't have enough money to do that. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, how am I going to get out of this? And your first response is, we're just not. We're just not. You know, how am I going to get out of this mountain of debt? We're just not. We're just not. How am I going to fix this broken relationship? We're just not. We're just not. Philip's answer is just an excuse. No, it's not going to happen. You know, we haven't been working for a year, so how are we going to get a half a day's wages, Jesus? It's not going to happen. He's faced with a scenario, and he's faced with this impossible odds, and all he can think of, it just isn't going to happen. How often do we get there? I get there a lot, if I'm honest. You face a situation, you're wondering, how, how are we going to fix this? You know, I know all the things I can do, and I'm just out of my league with this problem. Whether it's your family situation, maybe it's your care for your parents, maybe it's the care for your kids, maybe it's an extended family, maybe it's school, maybe it's work, maybe it's your, your marriage, and you're wondering, how are we going to fix this? And for some of us, the answer is, meh. It's just not going to happen. That's what Philip did. But remember, this was a test. Jesus knew what he was going to do, the text tells us. When we face these impossible odds, we sometimes have to remind ourselves, Jesus knows what he's going to do here. So should my answer be, meh, it's not going to happen? In verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. So uh, some of you are familiar with this typically in scripture the emphasis is on men cuz culturally that's where you count your numbers so it's not including women and children so likely there's more than 5000 people we're not saying it's right we're just saying that's the reality of culture in the first century world and so that's why it's recorded like that jesus then took the loaves gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted he did the same with the fish we had They had all had enough to eat. He said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So Jesus says this is a test. John records it that this is a test. What are we going to do, Philip? Philip, ah, maybe nothing. Because it's going to cost too much to fix this problem. And Jesus says, what are we going to do, Philip? And Andrew overhears and says, hey, we found this kid, and we're going to steal his lunch. <laughs> right? And so might be we were thinking, well, that seems strange, but yeah. So we take his lunch, we take his loaves of bread, we take his fish, and Jesus gives thanks. Why? Because this was a test. How much do you trust Jesus. How much do you trust Jesus to take what you have and do something miraculous? Andrew, Philip, both of them have been walking around with Jesus for a year. Both of them have very different responses. One says, just not going to happen, Jesus. Just not going to happen. This is too hard. And one says, well, look what we got. Look what we got. Not going to happen, Jesus. My marriage cannot be fixed. We are fighting all the time. We don't respect each other. There's no love. Not going to happen. But look what we got. We made a commitment. We said, I love you at one point. Look what we got. What if I bring that to Jesus? Not going to happen, Jesus. My kids are just horrible. They're on TikTok all the time. Like, what is wrong with them? And they always argue with me. They talk back. You know, I don't even know what's going on in their mind because when they're not talking back, they're not talking at all. Not going to happen, Jesus. But you love them with the same love or similar love the Father has for you. Look what you have you have 12, 13, 14 years of love. When we face these impossible scenarios, we can very easily just say, no way, Jesus, it's just not going to happen. But all Jesus says is, what do you got? What's there? Because when we take what we have and we give it to Jesus, something amazing happens. Something we never expect. Something we can't do on our own. None of the disciples could have said, okay, we got five loaves of bread, let's cut it up really tiny and see how far we get. I mean, that would make, well, it doesn't make sense, but it's what I could do. Instead, they bring it to Jesus. They bring what they have, and what does Jesus do? There's enough for everyone. In fact, there's leftover. How often do we find ourselves in a situation where we think, there is no way I can get out of this, and we need a miracle. But all Jesus is waiting to say, hey, what do you got? What do you got? What are you going to bring? What are you going to bring to me and see what I can do with it? The text continues. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. What do the people do in response to seeing what Jesus just did? They're like, hey, we want you to be king. They knew some of the stories. They knew the story of Moses. They knew that Moses, again, it's Passover time, who leads his people, leads God's people out of slavery into the promised land, into hope, even though there's a lot of trouble getting there, leads them into what God has for them. And this story is meant to mirror that in some ways. This same Moses says in Deuteronomy 18.15 that God will raise up a prophet out of his own people, out of the Israelites, and he will lead them. And so the people say, hey, this is the prophet Moses talked about. So what do they want to do? They want to take him and make him their leader. They want to take him by force, Jesus says, understands, and make him their leader. They're in this reality where they think, well, this is what's going to get us out of our situation. In this miraculous moment where Jesus took what they had and made it to something more unimaginable than they could ever dream and better than they could ever dream, they come back and say, hey, let's do it our way again. Let's make him king because they'd heard the stories. They'd heard from Second uh, Baruch, which you'll have on the screen here, which is not found in your Bible, but is this intertestamental writing about who is to come. And so these people will be familiar. It says in Second Baruch 29, it will happen at the time that the treasury of manna will come down again from on high, and they will eat it for those years because these are they who will have arrived at the consummation of time, and it will happen after these things, when the time of the appearance of the anointed one has been fulfilled, and he returns with splendor, that then all who sleep in hope of him will rise. They'd known this story that had been passed on, that the manna would come again, the manna being... In the story of the Exodus, in the story of Moses leading his people, they're wandering in the desert, and they have nothing to eat. And they say, hey, fix this problem, Moses. And Moses says, all right, God provides. And they give manna, which translate to, huh, I don't know what this is. But they make bread out of it. And so they know the story. And all of a sudden, they're in this situation where they have no food, and Jesus provides miraculous bread. So they know the story. And they say, well, hey, let's make this happen now. Let's make this what we want it to be. What do we know how to do? Well, we know how to take him by force. We know how to force him to be our king, our ruler, our guide. So Jesus withdraws. And it says a lot about Jesus, saying that that's not his way. It's the people's way. In the same way that the reality was that Philip didn't know What to do in the situation? The people don't know what to do. They know what's right before them. They know the reality of their world is not the way it's supposed to be. They know that God has made a promise and they want that promise to be fulfilled. So hey, let's make it happen. We do this all the time. We know that things should be different than they are. So we try by force to make it the way we want it to be. All the time. Whether it's in our relationships where we go, okay, how do I make this person love me? So I do all these things to try and make them love me, and truth is it doesn't really work, because it's not really you, you're changing yourself. Or it's in our workspace, where we go, okay, well, as long as I look better than my neighbor in the cubicle, I'll be okay. We're presented with situations that seem impossible, It seem like there's nothing I can do, and all that Jesus says, says, what do you have? Bring it to me. But instead, we say, no, I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to fix it. So what are you holding on to? What is it that's in your life that you are holding on to so much that you are trying to control? You're trying to fix it. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a work situation. Maybe it's your future. You're trying to say, this is where I want to be, so I'm going to do everything to get me there. Again, plans aren't a bad thing, but maybe there's a bit too much control. What are you holding on to? Then the second question to think about is, what do you need to hand over? What is it that you're holding on to so tightly that Jesus is just saying, what do you have? Bring it to me. Bring it to me. My guess is that every single one of us has something we're holding on to. Whether it's a concern about a family member, someone we love, a relationship, maybe it's a work situation, maybe it's a personal thing, maybe it's your health, we have something we hold on to. And we don't want to give it up because we know what we can do with it. But we're missing the details about what Jesus can do. And what Jesus can do is so much better. It's miraculous. It's like nothing we could imagine. Jesus can take what we have and make it more than enough for us. He demonstrates this over and over again through the gospel accounts, but he also demonstrates it in our own experiences. Maybe some of you have had that experience where you're like, I don't know how I'll get through this. And their instinct is you pray. And when you pray, you hand it over to Jesus. And you have a story to tell of how Jesus took what you had and made it so much better. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe it's a friendship. Whatever it is, when you hand it over to Jesus and say, this is what I have, you can expect the unexpected, because what he can do is so much better than what you can do on your own. But you'll never find out if you just hold on to it and never let it go. So what are you holding on to? And what do you need to hand over? My prayer for you is that you see the signs that Jesus is pointing to, that he is the one who can take what you have and make it better than you can imagine. But you have to give it over to him. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a God who invites us to take what we have and not just hold it for ourselves and hold on to whether we are struggling with it or even if we're overjoyed with it, whatever we're feeling, take what we have and give it to you because when we give to you, you can do miraculously more than we ever imagined. I don't know everyone here in this room, and I don't know where everybody is at with you, God, but my prayer, Holy Spirit, is that we have our hearts and our minds open to the reality that you are inviting us, Jesus, to bring what we're holding on to, what we are worried about, what we are concerned for, what we don't want to let go because we don't know how to fix, and open our hands and present it to you. And to give thanks that you are the one who can transform our situations. That we can try on our own, but the reality is we are limited. And you can do so much more. I pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning, that if we are holding on to something, that we can take these moments and open them up. Open our hands and hand them to you, Jesus. And trust you like Andrew did, trust that you can take what we have and make it so much more. That you can transform what seems impossible to something great. Jesus, we need you to do that. And we invite you to do that. We know you are always with us, or maybe we don't know that. But the truth is, you are always with us. But we're not always aware of it. I pray that we grow in that awareness and we open up what we're holding on to so that you can have it and we can experience life in all its fullness that you promise and so much more than we can imagine. And I pray this in Jesus' name.